week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1984, a lack of funding is blamed as the primary reason for the failure of British cyclists at the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Team GB had not won a cycling gold medal at the Olympics since Thomas Lance and Harry Ryan teamed up to win the tandem event in Antwerp in 1920. So perhaps it was not surprising that they didn't win a medal of any colour at the 1984 Olympics. Nevertheless, it did not stop the British media from writing scathing reports about the performance of the cyclists. The editor of cycling magazine, Martin Ayres, wrote the following in the wake of the poor performance. As far as Britain was concerned, there was nothing at all to cheer about, for despite an eighth place in the team time trial, we didn't win a single medal, and that is the shame of it all. It's no good anymore talking about facilities and time off for training. Very few of our top cyclists work anyway, perhaps that's the problem, and they have far more opportunities now than their predecessors, who used to bring home medals. The road race course was said to be too hilly, and the weather too hot, and none of our riders finished. Yet Ireland managed to finish a full team. Ireland isn't noted for its hot weather either, but it does breed a tougher roadman, it seems, than Britain does. On the track, things were no better. Mark Barry, our national sprint champion, arrived a stone overweight. Our team pursuiters were slower than the winner of the individual pursuit, and Ian Camish didn't even start the team time trial, afraid that he would let the others down. Well, he has let himself down badly. The cry will be to sack the manager. Far better to sack the team. However, when the excuse came back from British Cycling, the blame was placed firmly on a lack of funding. Pete Sanders, who took part in the road race, said the following. The days when you trained on the way to work, spent 18 hours down the pit and trained again on the way home, snatching a slice of bread and marge as you went and won the national championship on Sunday, are gone forever. If you don't accept this, take a trip to Colorado and examine the preparations made by the Americans. They had 60 paid squad members training under the supervision of expert coaches and doctors from the beginning of the year. This is the future. If you want us to win medals for you in Korea in four years' time, be prepared to fund the same or forget it, and let Britain remain as an amateur cycling backwater. We are living in a technological age, physiological as well as mechanical. Accept it or shut up. It is a fact of life. Nearly three decades on, and with more than a few million pounds of national lottery funding, British cycling was the envy of the world at the London Olympics. They won a total of eight gold medals, while no other country won more than one. So, Killian, how do we do this? I mean, it's been so long, I think I've forgotten who to podcast. Yeah. Am I Scott? Am I John? I, I don't know. Uh, did you have a good time uh, on your holidays? Oh, it was very good, yeah. It was uh, a, lot, a lot less rain than at home in Ireland anyway. I don't think it rained once, and it's rained all summer long in Ireland. Yeah, Unsurprisingly. You, yeah, you made yeah the, it was great. It was great. You, made the legend, you made the legend that is Jan Valencia. I did, yeah. He took me for a pint in his hometown of Monterey. It was... Uh, yeah, it was great. Lovely man and his wife. Lovely. <laughs> anyway, let's crack on. Um, this is episode 15, we think. We we can't quite remember of This Week in Cycling History with me, John Galloway, and my colleague. Kelly and Kelly. And we're going to start off with... Um, it's actually it's a, it's a really appropriate topic that Kelly and starting off this week, and it's discussing the changes that have happened in British cycling. Yeah, I, I just I found this article in one of the old Cycling Weekly magazines. It used to be called Just Cycling back then, and uh, it, it's just kind of completely turned on its head since then. That uh, you know, in in these articles, it's just so funny to go back and see the British team comparing themselves to the Irish team as an example to follow, because uh, it, I, <laughs> like I said, I think that has compl- all, not just the British team with all their success, but the Irish team has has become. Uh, 
it's 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 got lots of troubles and 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 the the riders themselves often uh, complain about cycling Ireland on Twitter and it's it's very unprofessional and, and I know Stephen Roach has had uh, words about it published recently enough that it's just it's it's become a bit of a uh, an am- amateur in in quotes setup and uh, like back then in, in just after the 1984 LA Olympics um, there was another rider in the race his name was Daryl Webster. He, he was br- another British guy, and he was yeah. going through n- not just the financial issues that there was the, the lack of money, but during their time at the Olympics, like the the team managers never organised any sort of rides. They were just plonked on their bikes and said, "Go away and you know do your own thing." And it was very disorganised. They said the mechanics were very uh, again amateur, and they left the the bikes in a state that there was many problems during a race during during the during the road race, which. Um, this guy Daryl Webster complained that the media didn't report on that they did have a massive amount of bike-related issues that didn't get reported. But again, was the problem of just having, but just being ill-equipped with with bad mechanics. And uh, they pointed at the Irish team, who, who funnily enough, was managed by Pat McQuaid, your, your friend, <laughs> oh, he's a in, star, uh, isn't he? in LA, and um, that the Irish team ha- ha- were quite disciplined and quite organised, and 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 that they they were the example to follow. And uh, just recently. After the, the just the Olympics just gone in London, I mean the Irish were were really poor. Like they had three guys in the race. They had Roach and Daniel Martin and uh, David McCann, and mm-hmm. uh, um, he's actually he would be a time trial specialist. But they had him in the road race, and uh, they did nothing. Like you know they they were just anonymous throughout the whole race. And Paul Kimmage was on. Uh, we got this program called Off the Ball on a, a station called News Talk, which is an absolutely yeah. fantastic show. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard it. Well, no, you sent me you sent me a link to a show in which uh, Kimmage was on, and I think McQueen had refused to appear with Kimmage. Yeah, that, that's a so. that's a regular thing that uh, they get Kimmage and McQueen to talk, but never at the same time. McQueen refuses to talk to Kimmage <laughs> on air, but uh, you know they're they're really knowledgeable guys, and you know like most of the mainstream outlets, they're kind of clueless when it comes to cycling, and they they end up asking silly questions like, "Do you crash often?" Or you know, but 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 these guys are, are really informed, and. Uh, they had Kimmage on first of all um, just after the Olympics and he was <laughs> unsurprisingly scathing of the Irish performance and he was complaining that uh, they just they, they, you know they just they seem to be there for the for the for the spectacle and for the free trip and mm-hmm. and he was pointing out little things like Roach was stuck at the airport with no lift to the Olympic village and yeah. you know he was standing around waiting for a bus you know and, and that this is just that would be unheard of in the British setup you know you're a professional cyclist you know why are you waiting for a bus with your bike bag and and all of your equipment when you're an olympian and you're and you're going to the london olympics like it was just kind of farcical and uh kimmage also was given out about roach's tactics in the race that uh roach's roach announced that his i don't know whether he announced it before or after but his tactic was actually to follow mark cavendish and (laughs) to stay with him as if he was capable of taking him on in the sprint i mean that's just Uh, it's kind of laughable that he, he would think he stands a chance of beating Cavendish not even never mind Cavendish but like the 10 or 15 sprinters that are as close to Cavendish in the world he, he Roach wouldn't even get near them you know it, it was just a, it was a laughable tactic and uh, Roach was very easy on himself in this interview and, and said you know this was my tactic it didn't work out because the British team didn't pull the race back together and and say la vie you know that it didn't work out but uh it was never going to work. It's madness to think that that was the tactic, but 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 then they had Roach on, and um, Roach was uh, he he was they they had Roach on the next day on the show, 
And uh, like I say, he was just uh, he, he, it, it was um, it just it was indicative of the amateur approach that the Irish had taken to the Olympics. And I don't know how, how aware you were of the selection process of the Irish team. That there was a big kind of controversy that Matt Bramier didn't get selected, yeah. and he he was actually you know he's been Irish road race champion three years in a row, and he, he's actually been performing pretty solidly. And uh, the fact that he got left out of the team was a bit controversial and that they sent these three guys who ended up doing nothing. Uh, I, I would imagine Matt Bramier is a bit is a bit sore about the whole, whole thing. But but just going back to the, the British thing, like it is incredible how they've turned it around and uh, that, you know, uh, the, the Pete Sanders saying there that, that um, we, this Britain's going to end up as a cycling backwater if we don't do anything. Well, Jesus, by, by God, they did something, you know, and uh, they're, they're, they're the team to... To emulate in 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 the next Olympics. Yeah, money, 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 money all the time. Yeah, that's it. Like I, I have a couple of figures here. Like in 1996, um, the, the the British Cycling was awarded twenty two thousand pounds to for, you know for development or, or or for whatever they wanted to use for. And by two thousand and five, that was almost eight million pounds. You, you know, so it's just an, a a massive massive gap. And you know, the, it's kind of pinpointed that that Chris Boardman's success in Barcelona '92 was the catalyst for this. And I, I suppose, it, in some ways, it was. But it was really when they started throwing the national lottery money at it when the, yeah, the national lottery got set up. I, I, can't, I can't remember what year that was. It was 1997, was it? I, I can remember very well because uh, my eldest boy, who is uh, 22, we were foolishly chose the ages as numbers, and he was four, so it's 18 years ago. Um, and we've wasted a lot of money in the, in the intervening 18 years. But I actually don't mind because that money has funded the development of British cycling. It's looking along the woods <laughs> well, of other you can, stuff. You can take a small part of the credits. So. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's, I suppose now um, the Irish setup really needs to look at themselves and decide how they want to move forward because, uh, like, like Pete Sanders said in, in, in that little piece there, if, if you don't have the money, if you don't throw money at this, you're not going to get any success, and uh, I mean the last Olympics was was terrible from an Irish point of view for, for the cyclists. From um, sorry, what I would say I mean we're talking about Nico Roach there, and he's frankly laughable tactic in trying to follow Cavendish. What do you think of his move to Saxabank? He he talked about that in that interview as well, and um, uh, the the guys on News Talk they're not you know they're never afraid to ask the, the tough questions and they did ask him quite tough questions and uh, I don't think he dealt with them very well you know the the, the question that's the, the kind of the obvious question to ask him is about Reese and Contador and you know that these these are two guys that have obvious doping pass and you know when Roach signed or when it was announced that Roach signed Contador was still banned and you know he's agreed to, to write for this leader for the next two years or, or three years I'm mm-hmm. not sure what the duration of his contract is but he was asked about this and uh, he he dealt with it really badly, you know. He kind of said uh, he first of all said, um, "I don't want to talk about this," you know, which, which isn't is good. never good when you're asked about uh, doping when you're a cyclist. But you know, he he kind of rambled on anyway, even though he said he wouldn't talk about it, and and kind of tried to fob off the issue of doping as something that was in the past. And he, you know, he kind of talked he talked about Reese. And that, you know, obviously this was in 1996 and cycling's moved on and yada, yada, yada. But, mm-hmm. you know, when he was talking at that moment, Contador was still banned. And, uh, you know, you, can't, you just can't ignore that this stuff went on in the past and that there are these guys still influencing careers and, and uh, you know, working with youngsters. And, and uh, you know, 
like I know, like take Jonathan Waters as an example. You know, he he's admitted doping recently, and Indeed. you know, I think people are quite happy to see. Him, most people anyway are quite happy to see him working with youngsters because he's been so vocal about his anti-doping or about about well, he's been so vocal about anti-doping. He, he's only become vocal now about his his doping past, but uh, you know, I think we all knew that. He, oh, absolutely. He, yeah. He has hinted at it so much. You know, it was kind of obvious, but I. You know, Reese has has never done anything like that. You know, he, he's he's never he, he's never uh, put himself out there as an advocate, a serious advocate, anyway, for anti-doping. And, and and for Roach to join this team and and to be given the opportunity to uh, you know broadcast his own anti-doping message, I think he really failed when he was yeah. given that opportunity, and uh, he he didn't didn't do it very well, and he he. Uh, I don't, I, you know. Um. I'd, I'd agree with that. I think it might be the making of him as a rider, though, because I think with with you know with Contador at the top of the team, we'll see him stop his kind of silly um, Don Quixote like chase after Grand Tour you know success, and he'll maybe concentrate on the week long races that I think he could actually excel at. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Apart from the the Reese Contador doping thing, yeah. Uh, from a racing point of view, definitely. Like obviously, Contador will be the leader for the tour, and. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Maybe Roach won't even ride the tour next year. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, if even if he does, I would imagine he would probably get leadership again for the Vuelta, which he's um, riding now today. Um, but uh, I, I'd say he will get leadership for a Grand Tour, not the tour, not the Tour de France. And uh, yeah. other than that, then yeah, I, I, I would say maybe if he does ride the tour, he'll be given a bit of a rein to chase stages. Which is, even his dad says that's going to be his base policy. Yeah, and and like trying to win week long stage races and one day races, you know, he, he's um, he could really forge out a great career for himself in the style of say Sylvain Chavanel or, or Luis Leon Sanchez. You know, there's no shame in not riding no. for GC in Grand Tours. You know, if you haven't got it, you haven't got it. And he's 28 now, I think. You know, it's it's about time he he makes the big decision and, and stops trying to to finish on the top ten of the, of the Tour de France. Anyway, we better move on because I mean, you, we've clearly been saving it up, and by we, I mean you, because you're you're, you're talking for for Ireland there, uh, and all of all of it extremely interesting. But we'll move on now to to one of my heroes, uh, also a flawed character with a a dark past of dopage, uh, Jan Ulrich. In 1999, having missed the Tour de France because of injury, Jan Ulrich announced that for the remainder of the season he would be focusing on the Vuelta a España, the World Championships, and the Tour of Lombardy. Having finished either first or second in the previous three Tours de France, Jan Ulrich was forced to withdraw from his Deutsche Telekom team for the Tour. This was due to an injury he had sustained in his home tour of Germany, where he damaged cartilage and tendons in his knee as a result of an innocuous crash caused by a teammate. Having watched Lance Armstrong win the 1999 Tour de France from the sidelines, Ulrich was forced to regroup and refocus his efforts for the remainder of the season. The only Grand Tour Ulrich had ever ridden had been the Tour de France, but he made his decision to try and win the 99 edition of the Vuelta España. And the German made his mark on the race very early on. The first mountain stage was on stage 5, where the race went over two first category climbs and two second category climbs. Ulrich came to the flat finish after the final summit in a large front group of 23 riders. Renowned as a time trial specialist, Ulrich took all comers on in the sprint and beat them to take his first win of a difficult season. Although Ulrich won the stage, the Spaniard Abraham Alano took the race leader's jersey, and Alano would go on to put a minute further into Ulrich on the following day's time trial. But Ulrich persisted, eventually resting control of the race on stage 12, as Alano faded badly before ultimately abandoning. 
Ulrich held a slender 30-second advantage over Igor Gonzalez de Galdiano up until the final time trial where he hammered the field, taking almost three minutes off every single rider. Having focused on the Tour de France from 96 to 98, Ulrich had tended to curtail his season following the Tour, but having finally found himself injury-free and in good form after the Vuelta, Ulrich extended his season to include the World Championships. He won the time trial and he finished 8th in the road race, which would ultimately be the best placing he would ever achieve at the world's road race. Ulrich said this about his season. Winning the time trial title and the Tour of Spain makes up for the disappointment of the Tour de France. Not being able to ride my race was very difficult, but now I'm happy because I've had a successful end of season. It also means everything is in place for a good season next year. That's very important psychologically, because I've raced until the end of October. It means I won't put on weight, as I've done in the last two winters. I'll put on a couple of kilos, but I'll be back on the bike in December for the first telecom training camp. And in January, I'll be almost at my racing weight. Now, looking at that, it looks at a victory, which I remember very well in the Vuelta, uh, where you know Ulrich had a, a great ding-dong battle with Abraham Milano, who was another rider I, I quite enjoyed because he got fat easily and was a decent time trialist. Um, I think the predominance of the Tour de France in the public psyche and in advertisers' wage packets has actually robbed us of a lot of great races because these guys who focus purely on the Tour now, because that's where all the money are, is, could show themselves in... You know, as Eno did, in any race throughout the season, if they were allowed to pick and choose without everybody saying you have to win the Tour. And I'm kind of angry about that, because this was a classic edition of the Welter, which we would never have seen if Ulrich had written, you know, what he called his race. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, it's, it's about to happen again, this Vuelta, you know, for not for injury reasons, but for suspension reasons that, you know, Contador is riding the Vuelta. And, uh, you know, he, he certainly wouldn't have been riding the Vuelta if, uh, if he rode the Tour. Yeah. And, um, you know, Cantor was actually, kind of funnily enough, because of all of his uh, suspensions and the fact that his team didn't get invited to the Tour one year and uh, all this, you know, he, he has quite a diverse Palmares. You know, he's he's won the Giro twice slash once, whichever way you want to look at it. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's won the Vuelta and he's won the Tour. And, you know, he, he would only have won the Tour if if he wasn't forced to focus on other races. I, I know it's terrible, the, the situation that has led him to focus on other things, but it, it's uh, it's a much more fuller and more interesting Palmares now because of it. And uh, like you say, I mean, it is a pity that that uh, obviously the Tour is going to be the most important race on the calendar. I don't think that's ever going to change. But, uh, you know, there is definitely scope for riders to focus on other things. And, you know, I suppose Andy Schleck is the prime example. He... he he doesn't seem to focus on any other race no, than, than the Tour de France, and um, you know, I, I think maybe, maybe this year, I, I know he got injured, but I think this year more than most, uh, th- there was a, a cry for him to, to maybe try and win the Giro because the Tour route didn't suit him, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he obviously didn't. But you know, if, if he did, I, you know, I, I think he would be respected a lot more, and you know, he could still give the Tour de France his full attention afterwards but uh it's it is a pity that these guys don't focus on on other races more and i i know like bradley wiggins now is the tour champion and uh he he has mentioned in the past i'm not sure whether he's mentioned it um since he's won the tour but that he's always wanted to win paris roubaix and uh, i i think i'm right in saying he's actually the only tour de france winner since greg lamont who's actually ridden paris roubaix maybe armstrong wrote it in his early years i'm not sure but uh you know Wiggins winning Paris Roubaix isn't ridiculous, you know. He's he's uh, he's got the power. You know, his background in time trialing and 
you know, he, he, he rides the Tour de Flanders all the time. And, uh, you know, that's a serious possibility if he was to focus on it, which would be absolutely unbelievable for cycling fans to see the, the Tour winner take on Paris Roubaix. It would be, it would be incredible. It'd be magnificent. And I mean, even Contador this week, you know, he rode the Unico Tour because it was the only one he could ride to try and, you know, get some race prep for the Vuelta. And to see him on those cobbled climbs, you thought, you know, if, if he was allowed the freedom to concentrate on, you know, just one season of the Spring Classics, for example, he's a classy enough rider that, you know, you could see him taking a Tour de Flanders or something, as well as, you know, the obvious stuff like Liège. Yeah, so, and, uh, and again, now the fact that Contador has been banned, you know, it, it wouldn't be surprising. I, I, I'm not exactly sure what his plans are, but I think he plans to ride the world's road race, which is uh, over a similar route to Amstel Gold, I think. Yeah, no, and, uh, it's in you know, Lombok. He'd be a serious contender for that. And, you know, if he's doing that, he'd probably extend his season on to ride the Tour of Lombardy, where he'd probably be a favourite also, you know. So, I mean... Yeah, it, it's a pity that the only reason he's riding these races is because he was banned in the summer. You know, why doesn't he do it all the time? His his Palmares could be could be pretty pretty impressive um, if if he did. And I remember Cancellara always saying uh, that one of his goals would be to win all five monuments. As I, I'd say, it's probably too late from now. I, I'd say it's. I'd agree. He's, yeah. you know, he's getting he's getting a bit older, and to change his body the way he would have to to take on Liège, Bastogne, Liège, and the Tour of Lombardy. I, I, I just I can't see it now, but it's fantastic that he has that vision. That you know, I, he he kind of he, I, I'm just thinking back to the interview. I can't remember when it was or or where it was, but I, I think he he said something like he has no interest in winning the same races over and over again. It, it doesn't interest him like the, the idea of winning Paris Roubaix six times in a row. It's just it's not it's not an attraction for him. And the attraction would be to win all five monuments, which is yeah. uh, which I think is great. But uh, it's it's just a pity that. Um, the focus always seems to be on 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 one one single race to the detriment of others. Um, there's there's a lot of scope for for uh, spread spreading your goals. I think it's the flip side of what we were talking about with the British team. I mean, money's been the making of them, and you know we, we've got to be glad about money coming into the sport because you know it provides it provides the finances that let the teams run. But it's all focused on one event, so you know that's the flip side. There's good things to have loads of money, but there's uh, there's bad things too. Now let's go back to a time where there was, well, very little money in cycling, and essentially uh, people were washing their own shorts in hand basins and, and you know getting trains and having to wait for buses and unprofessional crap like that. <laughs> and uh, this is a story about Ferdinand Brack. In 1971. Ferdinand Brack, in what he described as his greatest ever victory, won the Vuelta España. Brack was primarily a track cyclist, who was perhaps best known for breaking the world hour record in the Olympic velodrome in Rome in 1967. Brack added over 700 metres to the previous record of Roger Riviere. This was the longest distance added to the record since Oscar Egg added almost 800 metres to it in Paris in 1913. Brack had also been individual pursuit world champion in 1964 and again in 1969. He had also proven himself against the clock on the road, as he won the GP de Nation in 1962. This was the unofficial world time trial championships at the time, and it was Brack's first time competing in it. He had also won the Trofeo Baracki twice, a two-man time trial he won both times with no less than Eddie Merckx. He had also finished third in the Tour de France in 1968. This was the first tour after the death of Tom Simpson, and as such, it featured very few high mountains and was won by Jan Janssen, who was more of an all-round classic-style rider. Having always been a self-deprecating type of man, approaching the Vuelta in 1971, Brack was growing in confidence. He said, 
I was not really an ambitious guy. If I was lacking something, it was certainly this. But for that tour of Spain, I had said to my wife, I am going, I am going to win. Why? Because I had super form and I was sure of myself. I had more self-confidence at that moment than I had ever had at any other time in my career. I felt really good about myself, like nothing could stop me. It's like something inside that pushes you to outdo yourself. The men expected to challenge for overall victory that year were no pushovers. Riders on the start line included the defending champion Luis Ocana, former winner Raymond Poulidor, and a young rider who had finished second in his first Tour de France the previous year, Joop Zutemelk. Although Ocana had controversially stated before the race that he was using the Vuelta as training for the upcoming Tour, he had a funny way of showing it. Having gotten caught behind the wrong side of a big bunch split, he lost six minutes to most other favourites in the opening week of the race. Ocana spent the rest of the Vuelta attacking trying to gain those minutes back. Ferdinand Brack was canny enough to latch onto one of these attacks by Ocana, knowing the pressure to drive the breakaway was all on the Spaniard. As a result, Brack found himself in the race lead with just six days racing remaining, and Ocana still a couple of minutes behind on GC. For the remainder of the race, Brack sent his teammate Wilfried David in the brakes, marking Ocana, while Brack himself stayed sheltered, keeping an eye on his other rivals. Despite the fact that there was a measly 12 kilometers of time trials spread over three stages, Brack defended perfectly and took the overall victory. Ocana finished in third place and, as it transpired, was more than ready to win the Tour de France and end the reign of Eddie Merckx before disaster struck and he was forced to abandon after a crash. But in second place overall, but in second place overall, having gained time whilst defending the race lead, was none other than Brack's loyal teammate Wilfried David. Now, the only time I've come across Ferdinand Brack is because um, he's our record holder, which, as you know, is, is one of my minor obsessions. But I didn't even know he'd won the Tour of Spain. Yeah, I suppose I, I came across this, and, and the reason I, I kind of found it interesting when I read the story of the race was that it, um, you know, he, he's probably. Uh, but before this year, before Wiggins won the Tour, um, the, there was no track cyclist who had won an Olympic gold medal. Had ever had ever won the Tour de France before, mm. and uh, I guess um, there, there was one guy called Guy Lepebi who came th- third in the Tour in 1948, and and he won gold in the team pursuit a, a few years before that at the Olympics. But uh, you know this 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 guy Ferdinand Brack, he's probably uh, in recent years, well, recent 40 year, 40 years ago, um, he's 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 probably the closest to Wiggins that we've seen that that. You know, he he broke the hour record. He he was individual pursuit ch- world champion, and uh, and you know he won a Grand Tour. It wasn't Tour de France, although he did come third in Tour de France. But he he won a Grand Tour, and uh, I I just thought it was interesting as well that um the the fact that he had this teammate Wilfried David that was willing to sacrifice his chances, and you know he only he only beat David in the end by less than a minute. I think fifty fifty odd seconds, and. Uh, You'd have to say that the opportunity was there for this guy Wilfried David to to win the Vuelta as well, well because he, unlike say the way Wiggins and Froome did it, where they they stuck together, um, almost <laughs> when Froome wasn't dangling off the front, <laughs> but uh, they 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 um, D- David and and Brack didn't stick together. David was given free reign to follow breakaways and mark the the danger men, and you, you'd have to say that if he was so inclined, he, he may have uh, attacked his teammate and gone on to win. And and you know this, you know I I, I have never heard of this Wilfried David guy before. I, you know I'd say most people haven't, but uh, you know we, we probably would have if he had have taken this opportunity to attack his teammate, which is kind of um, not immoral, but it's uh, 
it's, it's, frowned, it's, upon. it's frowned upon. Yeah. But uh, you know, you'd wonder is Chris Froome ever going to get a better chance to win the Tour de France than than this year? You know, Conzor and Schleck will be back next year. Uh, I know he's a little bit younger, um, but uh, you, you know, it's it's possible that he'll never get a better chance. And you you know, you'd wonder how how many sleepless nights he'll have when he's. 50 and bitter and <laughs> hitting the whiskey saying yeah. you know why did why did i just not attack wiggins but uh you know it's admirable that he didn't but uh I, i'd say there'll be a constant constant question mark over over him unless he does win the tour of france himself i don't think he's got anything to worry about from andy schlake i mean i think he's got the beating of him on any day you know any day of the week because he can time trial whereas andy can't but i think with bert coming back his best chance might have passed this year and uh, I mean my other worry is he's going going into the Vuelta with you know indications of form that are enough to take it to, to Alberto Contador but you know he's he's bound to have uh, not peaked too early but he's certainly bound to have burnt a few matches in the, the service of Wiggins in the tour that, That's it and that's something that Contador didn't have to do you know Contador is he's known for a long time that his next Grand Tour was going to be the Vuelta and he, he would have organized his training completely to to win his home race and like you say Froome was busy at the tour and I I, I think I mean uh, it's only kind of recently that Froome has shown that he has the potential to win a Grand Tour but I would still say that Contador is probably a better climber and a better time trialist yeah than than Chris Froome so I I, I can't see Froome beating Contador uh, over the next three weeks but, but you know you, you never know what might happen no, but, I, mean, um, I completely agree because my fantasy team I haven't picked from but that's probably an indication that he's going to win because I'm <laughs> uniquely crap at fantasy cycling leagues um, <laughs> before we wrap up I mean the other thing I'd like to say about Ferdinand Brack is that um, it's easy to say oh he beat somebody we'd never heard of and, and Wilfried David but in third place in that Tour of Spain was uh, Luis Ocaña, so he was riding against you know top class opposition. So it was a well taken win, even if it was his only Grand Tour win. Yeah, and, and so, something else that was interesting that I came across when reading about that story. Actually, um, most of the details I got from that was a book called Viva la Vuelta, which kind of goes through the, the Vuelta year by year. It's uh, it's a little bit much to take in if you're to read it all in one go, but it's a great resource if if anybody. Is, is interested in the history of the Vuelta but they, they said in that race uh, as I said in, in the piece that um, Okana had announced that he was doing the Vuelta as training for the for the tour and uh, I, I guess I was a little bit surprised by that because I always kind of think back to you know obviously I wasn't around in the 70s or the 60s but, but that these guys raced to win everything and uh, that it's only a recent thing that pe- people ignore trying to win and and because they have a, a another goal m- months down the road mm-hmm. and uh, the, the way everybody does with the with the tour de france that you know they they ride the giro as preparation or the dauphin as preparation and i was i was just found it kind of surprising that okana especially in his home race he's a spaniard that uh, he he announced that this this was just prep for the big one yeah. uh, i i i just i didn't think that that was the done thing in the 70s but apparently it was but uh, but but like i said as well you know he he uh, he didn't really use it as training. I think he really wanted to win it in the end. Oh, completely. Now, this, we're recording this on the 18th Saturday, the, the day the Vuelta starts, although I wouldn't get around to editing and releasing it until when you're hearing it today, which is Sunday. That's really confusing now. I've got a yeah. time, time loop in my head. Um, <laughs> but we're going to try and get back on a reasonably regular basis. I mean, I've got 
23 shows in a row coming up day after day with the the Velocast Vuelta coverage, which you can subscribe to, you know, velocast.cc, and it's only a tenner, which is it's not much for 23 shows. But we'll still manage to get This Week in Cycling History, and it's it's good to have you back, mate. I've missed doing these. Yeah, I've missed it as well. You can probably tell where I haven't let you get a word in edgeways for most of it. Uh, no, I like this. This is well. easy. I'm, I'm keen on this. I'll just sit back and drink tea. <laughs> Anyway, um, that's this week's show finished. Uh, you can follow Killian at Irish Peloton on... Uh, on uh, that is right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, well done. See, I, I didn't get it wrong. Uh, I'm at Sofa Boy. Get in touch with us via Twitter. I mean, we love the conversation and we'll be back next week with episode 16 of This Week in Cycling History. Music.